listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to our first podcast back for 2018, the week 29th of January to the 2nd of February. It was very fun coming back this week. Uh, we talked, uh, we had a lot of new 6.15 segments. Mm. If, you're, if you're one of our early listeners, you might have caught them. Otherwise, you can uh, listen back to one now called Trauma Tuesday, <laughs> in which we discuss Jeff's fear of flying and my... I had an unfortunate incident at the supermarket. Yeah, trauma. It's not as um, heavy as it sounds. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also had a bit of a chat while I was away. Um, Kath shaved her head. That, <laughs> that was a surprise. Fun. And also uh, Birdman, Sean the Birdman Dooley came in and chatted about his trip to New Zealand and the birdies that he saw over there. Yes, and I talked about my trip to Indonesia and how I went hunting down the Komodo dragons. I think he hunted them I down. I did hunt them down. And <laughs> <laughs> we chatted to Sarah Krasnerstein about her prize-winning uh, book, The Trauma Cleaner. Beautiful book it is. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Breakfasters. We're back. Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. First, <laughs> f- first day of school. First day of school for some some people. That's exciting. That is hope exciting. You have, hope you have a great time. Uh, and don't worry, it'll all be over by three. Uh, and but, everything gets better anyway after yeah. high school. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, we've been to, we've been away on holidays. I um, went to a few different places. I went to um, New Zealand. Yeah, you were a jet setter. Well, I went to Perth and I went to New Zealand. Well, so jet, it's, two, two jet, jet setting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but what I so Kath and I went to Perth together. But then I was um, in New Zealand on on my own. Like Kath stayed at home. She had to work. I was working. But so we were all separated for you know. 10 days Did you or Skype more. or anything during that time? Well, here's the thing. Um, I didn't have uh, – I never – when I go overseas, I just survive on Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. Um, WhatsApp? Yeah, WhatsApp. Absolutely. Love love WhatsApp. But just because of the time – like I was working every night, like doing gigs, and she was at work during the day, so I just didn't have really have much of a chance to, to – actually had FaceTime. Um, so we did it once early on and then uh, a few days ago we managed to have some FaceTime and then – so I hadn't seen her for, uh, you know, many days. Oh, my God, what had she done? Uh, well, she'd shaved her head. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, Kath has no hair. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Her hair is all gone. <laughs> all gone? All gone. Number one? Yeah, razor. Oh, no, this well, there's some hair there. Oh my god! Yeah. What has got a buzz cut. Oh my god! Uh, Were you surprised? Yes. <laughs> you know, I cried. Oh <laughs> Why did she save her hair? Well, I'll get to that. But but the thing is, like she she found oh it very perplexing that I was so shocked by this. Buzz cut. Oh my god! Because I, Kath is, I'm perplexed by what Kath finds perplexing always, <laughs> constantly. Did you think maybe you'd you'd somehow got the wrong person? No, no, because no, you know I knew it was. I was just like, <clears throat> so it was a combination of like shock, and I hadn't, and also I hadn't seen her for a long time, and right. was like, oh, I'm very. Got very emotional and cried. And I was like, when did you do that? And she's like, what are you on? I've sent you a photo. 
And I was like, no, you did. I mustn't have got it. And she goes, no, I totally sent you a photo like on Monday. And I was like, and then I went back through the photos that she sent. And, of course, she did send me a photo. And I just thought it was a, oh, here's a selfie of me just in case you miss it. So I, I, she was wearing headphones though. Ah. And so it just distracted. It's very obvious when you look, when I look back at it now. <laughs> Shame it usually is. Yeah. But it, it, did it, you respond to that message? Yeah, I sent her a photo back of me. Oh, my God. <laughs> did she just think you were being really selfish? Or? No, she just went, oh. Okay, but obviously, I think she just thought I didn't really mind that much. We had she t- talked about it before I went away that she might do it, ah. and it happened because a another friend had um, shaved his head, and that was and he had done it when he was drunk and he'd had a haircut like a few days before and he thought it was a bit uneven. Ah, got to even it out when you're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? Shaved his head. <laughs> wow. And he, so... Lucky he didn't shave his eyebrows as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was feeling a bit, you know, oh, a bit silly about it. Mm. And didn't think would, he, yes. Didn't think it looked good. And so it was a, a little bit of in solidarity. It's like, oh, it's okay, you just shave your head. And also she's done it before um, and I think she just felt like, Doing it, and I get it. I've always wanted to shave my head. Always, yeah. I've got a weird head. But it was so, it. it was so because the whole time I've known her, she's never had a haircut. Really? Yeah. Her hair's not even that. Oh, yes, it is. Actually, it is. it is long. She's got, she's got undetectably long hair, Kath. Yeah, I said this to her when we were at long... the pub. Aha, uh-huh, because she hides it. Oh, oh it has it tied up? Has yeah. it, you know, in a plait. I remember when I noticed her hair was long, I had a bit of a freak out. Mm. And is, is she liking? The yeah, of course. It's so hot. It's great. Oh. What do you have to do to wash your hair or anything, do you? No, and it just dries itself. It's so good. Oh, you should. And so, did you? So, going back to when you finally Skyped or whatever, FaceTimed or mm. whatever, did you, once you recover from the shock, did you manage to say something nice? Oh, yeah. It was like that was the first thing I said in between my sobbing was. <laughs> <laughs> Looks great. Yeah, but it did. It was like it was a... Tears of joy. Yeah. I was was just like, it looks really good. Oh, my God. Do you keep going up and, like, nugging her head? I just want to rub her head all the time. Yes. Yes. And that was the worst when we were fighting. I'm like, I just want to touch it. I just want to... And now it's like, yeah, I got home yesterday. I'm like, ugh. It's fun to touch with shaved head. Now I want to get my hair cut. I just have a few drinks like like her friend and, you know, just even it out yourself. What it's could go wrong? Idea. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, it's Tuesday and here's our, our new segment that we're going to do at 6.15 on Tuesday mornings and that is Trauma Tuesday, <laughs> which sounds traumatic, I know, but really it's a chance that we talk about uh, things that we wish we had it done, um, things that we tried to do but stuffed up and just uh, little things in life that didn't go... According to plan, yes, it's kind of the opposite of. To your horn Tuesday, we basically picked up that we failed at (laughs) At most things. (laughs) So we're just going to embrace our failures. Yes, once a week for the rest of the year. Uh, Great. Do you want to start then? No. Except you start. All right. Oh, I've told you this story, Sarah, but I don't think I've told you 
I'm all right, I'll just zone out for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I was overseas during the holidays, and as you know, I don't like flying very much, so I made lots of preparations because it was a six-hour flight to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, no, and uh, the flight over there was fine because it was Garuda, and Garuda's got like entertainment and stuff, and mm-hmm. it was very smooth, and I just watched stupid movies the whole time. And it was fine. But when we were over there, we had to fly from one of the islands to the next island, and the planes are these, like, little planes with propellers. Oh, yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah, and I was freaking out from the moment we walked out to the tarmac. I bet you were. And I was looking at the propellers and trying to work out if they were going to work properly and yep. stuff. Um, and it's tiny, isn't it? <laughs> it's very tiny, yeah. It's, it's just like, like being on a minibus. You don't, you don't muss a, miss a bump on yeah. a propeller No, plane. and also because it was, like, it's coming up to the, the rainy season, so there's, like, tropical storms every afternoon. And wow. Go, we're flying from one island to the other and kind of landing into this, like, tropical... The more excited I get about this, I realise the more (laughs) fearful it is for you. Yeah, so I was in a state of absolute terror by the time time, time, um, we landed and then we had a six-hour flight on the way home. And um, so I'd done all this prep, you know, before I thought, okay, because it was going to be like... um, When you say prep, what do you mean? Well, because I knew it was was, was like one of the cheap flights. It was like um, Virgin or whatever. They didn't have any attainment or anything like that. So I thought like I'd download all these games and I'd download all these movies to watch on my phone and stuff. But because I'd been so freaked out by that plane, then I got on this plane and I just could not relax from the moment that I got on it until the moment that we six landed. Six hours. Six hours. So what I ended up doing, like, I had this mixtape of um, Vibes Cartel that was like about an hour and a half long and I just played it again and again on loop and I had to have my eyes shut the entire time. <sighs> and then it was like, I, for some reason I got, it con- work, I got myself convinced in my mind that if I stopped concentrating on the plane, <laughs> then it would fall out of the sky. Oh, which is... Yeah. Which is Diagnosable fear of flying. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so literally, that was kind of like a Tuesday trauma. But wow. it was just like it was because they'd come to bring you food. Um, and I'd go, Leave me alone. I'm concentrating. How did, oh wow. It, um, it's just getting worse. It is getting worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is getting worse. It was not fine on the way there, but I think it was just the experience. I think it does get worse with age. Isn't that right with flying? I don't know, because I come down to Sydney all the time and it's yeah. usually not so bad. Mm, it's different, but, though, because you've learned to control the Sydney to Melbourne flight because you're used to it. Yeah, with my mind. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Jeff. Well, that's a really big... That's, that is genuinely quite <laughs> it's traumatic. Put a bit of downer on the Tuesday. Yeah. It was like it was fun and, and the flight was perfectly smooth. And it was what you, it was a dreamliner. It was fine. <laughs> but the flight over there, you were you were okay. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, because you were prepared. No, it was more just that we hadn't had that other. It's, it's, uh, it's like something kind of triggered confirms your fears. Yeah, so well, then that's you go, right. well, my fears have been it confirmed. Valid and I rational have, yes, fears exactly. all along, and I do have to keep the plane moving with my mind. With your mind. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry that it's getting worse for you and I hope you can do something about it. This is deep. <laughs> well, I was, well, I've got two things. I've got a garden fail that isn't really that as traumatic as Jeff's story or I've just got an incident yesterday that happened when I ran into a lady that wasn't very nice. Which one would you like? I want to hear about the person who wasn't or nice. Also an incident when I was going to give um, an incident with... Like, I've got a few incidents. Oh. I feel like this trauma is going to Okay, well, maybe... Well, the other night, I'll start with this one. I'll, I'll, I'll use this as a yeah. time for me to vent all my problems. Yeah. No. So I had, so at my local supermarket, there's some people doing it rough who sit out the front sometimes and, you know, ask you to yes. buy them something when they go in or some you give them some money or whatever. And I know, know most of them kind of fairly yeah. well by now, got some familiar faces. And the other day on that 40 
whatever oh, day it was, yeah, 40 yeah. two degree day, or it was been really, really hot for a long period of time. I went to the supermarket and um, one of the blokes who I kind of know just by sight said, oh, I'd really like a sweet treat if you could. And I was like, yeah, no worries, mate. Of course, like a sweet cold treat is what he said. And I said, yeah, no worries, of course. Ice bowl. Ice bowl. So I went into the store and I bought a few things and I thought, oh, what if he doesn't like ice cream? What if he wants an icy pole and not ice cream? I spent a while thinking about this and I ended up getting Weiss bars because I thought that's kind of halfway between an yeah, icy pole and choice. ice cream. Thank you. And I also got him a drink, just like a Powerade-y type thing as well because I thought, oh, he's, he said he, – we'd had a little bit of a chat about how hot it had been as well mm. that day and he was a bit tired. And so then when I left and I bought myself, when I left I said, oh, you know, there you go, mate, and gave him his stuff and then – I was walking away and he called me back. He's like, no, no, no. I just wanted a Coca-Cola. Oh, well, say oh, that, mate. And I was like, oh, no. And I was, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I didn't know what to do. And then, then he goes, no, don't worry about it. And just gives me my bag back and then kind of looks away from me. I just thought I'd failed him so badly and I didn't know what to do. It was really... God, that's I, harsh, isn't it? Yeah, but like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just felt like such a... Don't felt, be so cryptic oh, about oh, it, mate. I know, you I want know. a coat, say coat. I felt like sweet yeah, cold it's treat. Like, it's like he's giving you a, yeah. a riddle to solve. I know, yeah. Yeah. But it was just so, it was, it was just so disappointing. Was he under me? a bridge and you couldn't cross <laughs> a bridge until you... I know. Got it. That's what, what, it was. I just. I know, but I just felt. I went. Oh, oh. I'm, I'm oh. so sorry. And so, did, and he, I, did he take the? No, he gave, gave it, it back. Yeah, gave it back. back. Yeah, he said no. He goes. Well, so I've been eating all day. No thanks. Like, oh, fine. I'll go have those oh. tasty treats. Cold tasty oh, now treats. I've got all these, now I've got a packet of Weiss bars in my fridge and a power. If someone says cold tasty treat, that's what I thought. Cold sweet treat. Cold sweet treat. And I thought, yeah, he definitely means an ice cream or an icy pole. Yeah. yeah. I felt really bad, though, as well, at the same time. Because I'm like, oh, mate, don't feel like, bad. If, <laughs> if you'd been expecting an, an ice cream and you got him a Coke, I mean, I could understand being disappointed. And, that, I, and I thought, oh, some people don't like Cokes. Are very, yeah, some people don't like the sugar or the caffeine. Yeah. I had thought about it. Even when I was getting Powerade, I thought, oh, maybe he just needs to, he wants some rehydration because he kept talking about how hot it would be anyway. Who doesn't like a waste bar anyway? I failed. Yeah. Well, you did fail. <laughs> um, what have I What's failed? What's your traumatic at? experience? <laughs> what have I? Oh, see, I've, I got so excited about explaining what it was that I didn't come up with one. <laughs> There's my failure. <laughs> this can be your failure. This is my failure. Um, not coming up with a uh, a thing to talk about right now. Live on air. Live on air. <laughs> That'll do. The end. <laughs> Triple R. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. We're back from our holidays. Good to be back. Thanks for all the nice messages. Yeah, you can uh, text us through our text line. Yeah, so we haven't mentioned that all week. It's 0466981027 if you want to send us a text. Uh, but, Jeff, you went to Indonesia, did you? I did, yes. Oh. To Flores. To fl- Flores. Yes. How do you pronounce it? Oh, that's how we pronounced okay. it. Um, we did, yes. In fact, you remember during um, Radiothon last year, but it was one of the prizes was to hunt Komodo dragons. Yes. yes. Not hunt to kill, but hunt to... I just have a <laughs> look at... Made me laugh every time. Every I went to time. say hunt. Oh, my God. Every time we mentioned... Anyway, so that's what we did. We went to hunt the Komodo dragons. So it's Flores. It's an island, isn't it? Yeah. So Indonesia's archipelago, and it's one of the islands. So it's about an hour, of hour's flight, hour and a half's flight from Bali. So right. you have to go there via Bali. And also it was, it was kind of interesting time to be there because of the um, volcano. Mm. There was hardly anyone 
in Bali and because there was hardly anyone in hardly any tourists in Bali and because of that there was hardly any tourists in Flores or anyone else. So the boat that we were on Normally they would have had like 15 people on it. We were the only ones on it. Did that make you feel uneasy or did you enjoy the space? No, it was good because it was pretty much like a private boat tour. I mean, it's good for us, not so good for all all the Indonesians who are all sort of saying, yeah, we're not earning any money and things are really bad. But it was pretty cool having this boat and they say, well, you know, the only people here, so where would you like to go? And (laughs) they're taking you around all these islands and stuff. But the Komodo dragons, um, they're really nasty animals. So can you okay? How big is a Komodo dragon? Yeah, so a lot of them like are, look sort of like big goannas, right? Like not oh. necessarily that big, but they get quite big. So I so thought the they were the size ones, of crocodiles. Yeah, the bigger ones are the size of crocodiles, wow. but they're, they're not all that kind of size. Anyway, so like we take they take us around on this boat, and the whole time they're saying like, oh, there are all these different things you might be able to see. You might be able to see a manta. You might be able to see giant turtles. Mm. You might be able to see this, that, and the other. But we can't guarantee any of these things and we can't guarantee you're going to see the Komodo dragons because, you know, they're wild creatures. That's why you've got to hunt them. That's why you've got to hunt them. (laughs) And so we did actually manage to see most of these things. Can I... I would much rather they don't mention at all what you could see. Yeah, so it's all surprise. Yeah. All surprise. Don't tell me... Don't don't set up my expectations of seeing a giant turtle. Like, just go, oh, have a look at that. It's a giant turtle. What? I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> no, who even knew that? Yeah, well, that was like we went to New Zealand with the expectation of seeing a whale and didn't see one the entire time. Exactly. But anyway, so the Komodo dragons are the last place you go to because they're all these different islands and you go around on the boat to the different places and mm-hmm. you look at all the stuff. And so we, they're on this place. One of the islands is called Rinka where they're, they're, they're on there. And we kind of thought that because of the way they were talking about it, you would go around this island, you'd walk around and you'd be looking for them. Mm. You know what I mean? Sure. You'd, 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 you'd spot them, but it wasn't like that at all. So, like, on the way there, they started saying, oh, you've got to be really careful because the Komodo dragons, they're poisonous, or at least they've got all these bacteria in their mouths. Yeah. So like a- the way they hunt, right, they they find a buffalo or a wild deer, they bite it, and, and then, then they, wait. they wait for it to <gasps> die, which takes, yeah. like, two or three weeks, and they just sort of slowly track it. Frigging so, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Slash terrifying. Or they chase them into the sea. Oh, my God. And then they just sit there on the beach waiting for them. So the poor bloody deer will be swimming around in the ocean thinking, oh, my God, I can't come to the beach because there's a Komodo dragon waiting to eat me. And the did dragon this, will... Did this scare you? Yeah, well, I was just kept thinking, they just seem like the nastiest bloody creatures. No, anyway, I love them. And then That's they start gross, saying, oh, you've got to be careful when you go onto the island because there's also... Um, it's also inhabited by spinning cobras. Oh. Get the air <laughs> What is a spitting cobra? Well, I guess the cobra that spit at you. But nobody had mentioned this until we were about to... about Because to, we were all in thongs and shorts. How you know? does the snake spit? Do they kind of... You know, you got to yeah, put your head back and go... Ugh. Like, yeah. Do they put, well, I don't think they huck they, anything up. Uh, but, well, maybe no, they huck some poison spit, up. It comes out of their fangs. Really? Yeah, it's really cool. And what happens when the poison hits you? How, that happens. How do they do that? That's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, anyway, so the boat gets to this rinker. Island, and we start walking along, and there's um, and we think, okay, we've got to go looking on this trek to see the Komodo dragons. But in fact, you, you come around the corner, and there are these like houses where all the guides live, and they're all sitting underneath the house. Oh, because what happens is like they get attracted by the food in the house, Whoa. so the houses are all on stilts. And the, the, there were like 15 or 16 of these Komodo Whoa. dragons sitting underneath the house and all the guys are sitting up there on the first story and they've just got like a sort of gate 
to stop the Komodo dragons oh my God. <laughs> coming up. The thing, just thinking, look, you know, these things that I don't know if they're deadly, but they seem to be like once you get bitten by it, if you're a human, you get bitten by them, you're in a whole lot of trouble. But nobody seemed the slightest bit concerned. I don't think you are. Did you have- whole, I, I think it's, it's tradable if you get bitten. Like, it's not like... You yeah, can't well, do anything for two to three weeks but, and wait to die. Let, and, and also, did they, you have weapons? Sorry, or anything? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, it's funny. No, I just mean just in case. It's like, funny it's, you should say that, right? Because it's kind of like <laughs> the, all the guides there. Like they said, um, are carrying around these enormous sticks. Mm. Right, yeah. and the sticks have like a kind of you know those snake sticks, and they have a sort of um, oh, the hook on oh. the end. Yeah, and so like the the Komodo dragon will start wandering up to them, and they sort of like waddle along with their tongues flicking at you. Mm. Like I guess that's sort of how they wow how smell they smell you. D- yeah, deciding whether they're going to bite you or whatever. And when they get a bit too close, they just poke them with a stick. Wow, and it just wanders off again. Really. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't imagine it's probably the best kind of animal management techniques that well, you could perhaps. It's worked. You didn't get bitten, did you? <laughs> and, then, and then they say, "Oh, you know, would you, <laughs> you got would chased you, into the sea? Yeah. Though? <laughs> would you like a photo with one?" And say, like, oh, "Well, you know, I suppose so." And then they start, so they start pushing it. Towards you. <laughs> oh, my God. How close do you get? <laughs> well, at one point we were posing for a photo and then the, the, the guy the um, the guy from the park sort of was talking to one of his friends and wasn't paying any attention and so starts waddling towards us with his great tongue flicking out. And Steph was saying, do you suppose we should tell him? <laughs> wow. <laughs> that yeah, is but, um, awesome. They're really nasty, really nasty, horrible creatures. I don't creatures. think they are nasty at all. I think they're just Komodo dragons <laughs> doing their thing. I mean, they're called dragons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's brilliant. If you if you got chased out into the ocean, <laughs> well, we'd, I'd stay out in the ocean. I'd stay out in the ocean. Yeah, I'll go, you're not getting me. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, it's your world now. Yeah. <laughs> just swim Hello, off. dolphins. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. Three. Triple. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah, the trauma cleaner, one woman's extraordinary life in death, decay and disaster. Is a new book published by text. It's written by Sarah Krasnerstein. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Uh, you say somewhere in this book that trauma cleaning is one of those jobs that most people don't know anything about, but it's kind of obvious that it exists once you think about it. So perhaps you can explain what trauma cleaning is is and how you first became aware of it. Sure. So um, trauma cleaning covers a variety of different types of industrial cleans. Um, it can be after, you know, a crime scene or a suicide or any t- sort of, you know, fire incident or police incident or corrections incident. It's the cleaners that come in after that, those types of dark unpleasantnesses to clean up so the rest of us don't have to see it in our daily business. Um, but what I was surprised uh, after learning that to learn is that it, it also extends to cleaning up a lot of um, living living messes, living people. So domestic squalor, hoarders, um, you know, things happening inside houses that you know you wouldn't you wouldn't think were there. Um, and I came across it by uh, meeting Sandra Pankhurst, who's the subject of my book. Um, when I'm not writing, I'm a legal academic, and it was a conference for um, uh, intellectually disabled offenders. Um, so Sandra is a trauma cleaner, and part of her clientele would be corrections or the police department, um, the court system. And she'd come in, so, you know, for 
prison cell needs a clean or a divvy van needs a clean. She'd come in and so she was in the business. She she was in the lobby there, touting her business to the criminal justice system stakeholders, and it was just fascinating, fascinating to see it. Was it at that moment that you went, "Oh, I think I might have to write a book about you"? Like pretty much. I mean, she is a very striking-looking woman, very beautiful. She was perfectly groomed, and she was sitting behind you know, a card table that was kind of spread with her business brochures, which is you know it's another day at the office for her, but she had this tiny table playing before and after shots of crime scene cleanups um, and hoarding cleanups. And the effect was just, you know, like Diane Arpa is my favorite photographer. And she said, the image doesn't, you don't choose the image, the image chooses you. And when that happens, it's like being (laughs) clobbered. And it was like I was clobbered. I just had to know more. You say in your introduction that by telling Sandra's story, you're engaged in trauma cleaning yourself in, mm. in, in, in a way. Perhaps you could explain what you mean by that. Tell us something about the traumas that Sandra experienced in her life. Yeah, I mean, Sandra's a type of character that wouldn't really fly in fiction because you wouldn't believe that one person had kind of had these many experiences. She's lived so many different lives. Um, and the effect of you know those experiences, many of which were quite were traumatic, has meant that in remembering her her life, she has uh, memory loss. And so it was really cleaning up kind of cleaning up her story so that we could piece it together as a full narrative and kind of reclaim, um, you know, it, it, reclaim all, all of it in all its glory. So in that sense, it was kind of helping her remember, um, filling in for her where she couldn't. Uh, and in that sense, giving her like a, a whole sense of self that she had kind of lacked up till now. Uh, Sandra's a trans woman, and yes. it's it's easy to forget just how difficult it was for earlier generations of non-gender conforming people. I mean, one of the really amazing, really sort of memorable parts of the book is when you describe the difficulty of someone of her generation experience even just working out what you did if you were non-gender conforming, where you would find other people, how you would realise that there were other people like you. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. As she explained it to me, um, it was very much a case of having having a feeling with no with no name for it. You know, it wasn't like she just, you know, forgot the word. It was like it never existed to begin with. So, you know, she's um, at that time living as uh, a straight uh, 19-year-old man with a young wife and two kids and just feeling different. She say, she'll say, you know, I didn't feel like a girl in um, a boy's body growing up and I didn't feel um, as though I were a gay man. I just felt I was different. And then that shifts over time to her thinking, okay, maybe I am a gay man. And then um, going out, I think she was in the clubs in St Kilda, and then she realizes, hey, these people are living full time in bodies that they were not assigned at birth, and it, she said it was like a light went off. So it was very much a case of feeling in the dark, kind of for the language and the community that weren't visible at all then, late sixties, early seventies, Melbourne, um, until she kind of found who were her, th- those who were her people. Uh, was I mean, the book is called the Trauma Cleaner, and obviously trauma is a major yes. theme of it. How did you go about convincing her to to tell you about these fairly awful experiences, mm. you know, as a victim of violence, mm. a sex worker, all the experiences that she went through? Did you feel much of a responsibility about telling that story? Oh, absolutely. I feel great responsibility um, kind of as, a, as the custodian of, of that narrative. Um, Sandra needed no, no convincing to share her story. I was just, I you know... I, 
pinching myself that I was lucky enough to find her at the exact moment in her life where she was kind of bursting at the seams with this story because she had moved through the different phases of her life only ever really being partially known even by those you know closest to her at the time and you know when I met her she was you know in her early 60s and she was finally starting to feel comfortable enough in her life and and her work that I think she was really crying out for someone to kind of ask the right questions at the right time and I was just lucky enough to be that person um and uh, you know kind of in, in listening by offering kind of a non-judgmental space for her to share you know all, her whole life and all its you know light and shade um and then to really use my one skill which I guess is, is research to kind of think okay how are we going to fill in these gaps for you um I think you know well she said it was quite cathartic at the end and so I feel like it, it, that's my one test I mean I'm happy if people like it but if she found it of use and she's proud of the product then you know as you know again the custodian of of that story then I feel like I've discharged my you, duty you discovered that trauma cleaning doesn't just uh, apply to deceased estates in in the book it also applies to hoarders yes uh, what did you learn about the psychology of hoarding? Because I think it's something that a lot of people have preconceptions about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all we have is that nasty, you know, hoarders on that TV, TV show. show. Yeah. yeah. Which is extremely exploitative, um, kind of voyeuristic, um, kind of, you know, quote unquote, like freak show. Mm. And what I learned was staggering because I learned that, A, the problem is much more prevalent than we think it is. It uh, is in every neighborhood, regardless of, you know, socioeconomics uh, or location, geography. Um, and it affects people kind of regardless of their, you know, professional position or their education or the age or and it really is a problem I mean you know it's a, a question of mental health but at the end of the day it's a it's a problem of human pain and so these problems that we think are gross or shameful or dirty or disgusting really could happen to me or you guys or anyone listening or you know anyone out there there but for the grace of whatever you want to call it so it was really this question of looking at people who existed entirely outside of you know the community, our social network, but also outside of kind of the, the villages that we build around us. Um, mm. And it really humanized the problem for me. Um, yeah. I think that there was a, a beautiful part in the book where you had been to a hoarders you had, and you were talking to your dad on yeah. the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were telling him how there was lots of books in this place and he said, well, what's the difference between a hoarder and someone having a personal library? <laughs> and your response was probably this phone call. And I guess that, that is testament to what you were just saying about the whole, you know, having a community around you and, and support and things like that. Yep. Uh, There's a beautiful conclusion to the book. And just to quote from it quickly, the opposite... The opposite of trauma is not the absence of trauma. The opposite of trauma is order, proportion. It is everything in its place. Can you maybe quickly unpick that for us? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, Sandra, who, you know, like I said, has lived, like, so many lives. She was, like, an abused, adopted uh, young boy in growing up in West Footscray. And then she was, you know, this young husband. She was a dancer in the drag shows in St Kilda. And then she was doing... Uh, sex work in Kalgoorlie and then she was you know one of the real housewives of Brighton and running a funeral uh, business and and you know domestic cleaning business and then she went into trauma cleaning so she's had this huge uh, hugely varied life she's been um, the victim of extreme cruelty and violence um, and yet 
when she walks in to help many of these living victims um, who've undergone similarly traumatic experiences, I was always wondering, well, what's the difference between Sandra, who is a trauma survivor, and these people who, you know, are also trauma survivors? And what, why is she the one here cleaning up after them? And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, you can't erase the past, but you wake up every morning and you decide, okay, what happens now? Like, so what? And my time with Sandra showed me that what happens is what you say happens. So while that was all true, it was in its place. It was still in the past. I mean, she definitely struggles still today with those demons, but she's resolute enough that to constantly at least try to put them back in their place and really deal with each new day um, to, to the best of her ability, and it's really beautiful to witness. So I think that, yeah, that informed that. Well, I thought it was be- beautifully written as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. The book is The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life in Death, Decay and Disaster, published by Text. We've been talking to the author, Sarah Krasnerstein. Thanks so much for coming in. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Three triple R. First feature creatures for 2018. Who better to do it with than Sean the Birdman? Do we? Hey, going, Sean. I am very well, very well. Oh. Delighted to delighted to see you all. That's it's. Thanks for having me back. It's nice oh. to have you, know, you back. I was waiting by the phone at the end of last year. <laughs> <laughs> Please, are they going to ring? You are can't ring. <laughs> <laughs> There's no oh. show without birds. <laughs> and what's been happening in the world of birds? Well, I uh, just listening to your 7:45 talk break. I thought I would continue the New Zealand theme because I was over in New Zealand uh, last week and uh, had quite a nice summer of birds and brilliantly capped off with a with a, a birding trip to New Zealand where I finally saw the legendary kiwi <gasps> which did you which is which was kind of you know I, I was over there to, I'd been to New Zealand a couple of times only for a few days each time what but part? Never seen. Sorry, what part of I was Zealand? in uh, basically within a few hours of Auckland for the oh. like so north and south of Auckland for a few days and um, but I'd never connected with a kiwi and you know, being the the hardcore, hard hearted, you know, it's all Your about the numbers man. twitcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you know thinking, oh yeah, it's just another tick in the list. But I have to say, there is something kind of magical about those stupid looking birds. Yeah. That uh, that it, it's one of those sightings. That you you sometimes come across a bird and it gets better. Like it's always exciting when you see a new bird. If you're a, a bird watcher, it's you know really great. But mm. this is one of those birds that it gets better in hindsight because you're thinking, I can't believe that I actually saw this amazing creature, this anomalous, weird ass bird that that uh, really makes you kind of inspired about how how cool nature can be, mm. and. Yeah, the kiwi is is quite uh, like it, the the weird thing about it is they're really rare um, because they're like most New Zealand birds. Now, New Zealand is is a particularly special place for birds. It's like sort of the land of the birds because it hived off from Gondwana land about I think it was about seventy million years ago, and mammals never reached New Zealand apart from like seals and and a few bats that that flew over there. So it was basically in a sense. In, in essence, it was this island arc of birds and birds. There were no no real reptile predators either, so the birds just occupied everything. They sort of 
it, it was a glimpse back to what life was like before the mammals took over the planet. <laughs> Bloody mammals ruined Bloody mammals, <laughs> exactly. And, and so you had these incredible birds but uh, that had millions of years of tens of millions of years of isolation to diversify and fill every niche and and one of them was the the kiwis which sort of a kind of you know ground dwelling they've lost the power of flight and they they don't feel like a bird when you do see them we were um we were in this area north of Auckland and this this was a wild population of kiwis there's a lot that have been uh, like most new zealand birds when when mammals did arrive in the form of humans and the mammals they brought with them, uh, including uh, when the Maori arrived, the, they brought dogs and pigs and the Pacific rat, and that took a huge toll on uh, bird life. And so by the time the Europeans arrived, about six, 700 years later, a whole lot of birds had disappeared, like the moas, which were the largest birds ever. They, they were, like, they, enormous, they, weren't they? Like? Yeah, they were, like, sort of... Uh, over two metres tall, like sort of emus on steroids mm. there. And even better, there was a there was an eagle, which is its closest relative is the little eagle in Australia, which you would expect the little eagle is an eagle, but that's not very big. The one in New Zealand grew larger and larger to hunt moa, and it was kind of like a mythical rock, kind of, you know, like this, the, something you'd, you'd get out of ancient Greek tales. This, this bird was like, had a wingspan of, you know, three metres or something and was known to, like, the Maori have stories of it taking children, you know. It was wow. This eagle that was designed to, to, to hunt down. Terrifying. Yeah, like nine-foot birds. So you can imagine how big the eagle was. But they were all gone by the time the Europeans arrived. But then the Europeans brought uh, different types of rats, mice, cats. They introduced hedgehogs, ferrets, all sorts of mm. uh, stoats. Why would you introduce hedgehogs? Um, I think... Th- I think they got there and all the birds disappeared, so they brought in stuff to uh, to eat the insects and um, eat because there was no biological control from the birds. They had to bring in stuff to, to uh, you know, eat the pests mm. and then also bring in stuff. Like they brought stoats in to eat the rats and mice that they'd already brought in. It was a bit like this insane, um, the old lady who swallowed a fly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised they just didn't, in in the end, it's not sort of rampant with lions and things. (laughs) (laughs) um, But the the Kiwis sort of managed to hang on because they were a bit big, too big for the rats to to completely wipe out. How big's the Kiwi? The surprise, there's about five species now and there's sort of the two biggest ones are the the northern brown and the and the great spotted and they're about they're about 50 60 centimeters tall so about two foot almost the, a lot the biggest, bigger the than females. i thought they would yeah. yeah you sort of and this is the surprising thing i knew what to expect and we were out spotlighting in a forest north of Auckland. because they're nocturnal aren't they? and they're totally yeah. nocturnal ah. and they live in burrows and they they're just so, such anomalous creatures. Like they they've got these long bills, and the the bird we saw was a female, which is the bigger one. It's this incredibly long bill, really sensitive, and um, for they sort of snuffle out for worms under the uh, in the in the dirt in the mm. undergrowth, and they actually have their nostrils on the end of the bill. So the, wow. the, the bill, the beak is sort of, you know, it's probably about 20 centimetres long. It's like, and and then they, it's, it snozzes actually right on the end. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we were 
uh, we sort of were walking through this forest at night and uh, there's a boardwalk there and we're on the boardwalk and you suddenly hear this sort of shuffling uh, in the oh. undergrowth and we're thinking, oh, yeah, we, we'd heard one call. They got this really weird call, these really loud sort of shrieks and trills like and what? things. Like uh, Sort of Can like... It's really good. Wow. Lloyd oh, Lloyd, I love that. And uh, we, we're hearing these go off uh, up up in the hill sort of thing. Didn't think we'd see one. Hear this shuffling. We think, oh, what could this be? You know, a it's hedgehog. Probably a, a hedgehog. <laughs> the first time I was in New Zealand, something ran across the road. It's got to be a kiwi, and it was a hedgehog. <laughs> and... Uh, and then, anyway, this shape comes into view, and they're such a weird shape for a bird because they're they've got these they've got this big kind of big fat ass <laughs> that, they, <laughs> that they sort of just thing, and then it gets de- it gets its head head down into the into the undergrowth, and it's and it's. Backside is facing us, kind of twerking at us, oh, <laughs> and, wow. and then it, it, it sticks up, and it just looks so out of proportion with this long bill, and because its legs are right at right at the back of it, and, and it sort of has no wings, so it's this kind of big. It's, I was going to say butterball, but it's like a it's a big sort of in in the half light, like we were using a red filter over the torch, so we didn't. Um, damage its eyes mm. and so in that sort of weird reddish light it, it kind of looked like a, a giant rumble oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a, a chocolate rumble that was just shuffling along and then it it just didn't care about us and this is one of the problems for New Zealand birds they weren't built to clock the fact that mammals would try and kill them so even mm. today they generally even though kiwis are very hard to see they're it's just more that they're out at night and things. So this thing probably used to a few tourists in this area. It actually, we're on the boardwalk. It walked right up to where we're on the boardwalk, walked literally under our feet <gasps> and then came out the other side. So we were wow. within sort of touching distance. And it was one of those things where I was reminded that, you know, why I got into birds when I, you know, in the first place when I was a kid because these, having that connection with the with such magical creatures, like creatures that you just can't conceive, like they feel like they were made up by by some trippy kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sort of stoner just doodling and going, oh, imagine this, like, <laughs> like it's a bird, right? But it's got no wings wow. and it just looks like a, wow, it's like it's like a coconut rumble just <laughs> going through the forest, <laughs> rolling along, yes. eating worms, man. <laughs> and like it's got its nose. Love, <laughs> the idea of like 420, God's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> Have a smoke and see what we can come yeah. up with. <laughs> and it, it's the, the the good thing in New Zealand um, is that, well, it, it's kind of the bird extinction capital of the world because between the Maori settlement and then the European settlement, so many of their birds went extinct very quickly. But a few remnant birds, including some of the Kiwis, survived on these offshore islands. And l- luckily, like even in the one, one species was... In 1912, somebody said, "These kiwis are getting killed. There's an island out there with no with no predators. Let's put them on that island." So they, this species, the little spotted kiwi, kept breeding on that island, and it was sort of saved only because somebody a hundred years ago thought to do that. Oh, wow. And then, but since, from the 60s onwards, there's been a concerted campaign to protect what was left because things were just still becoming extinct. Like rats were getting onto the last islands. For, for for certain birds and they were just being wiped out instantly and people were seeing that like 50 years ago extinction before their eyes and um and, and so there's been a huge community and, and government sort of work over the years and it's still 
you know, governments often defund things and they're not perfect. But it's amazing in New Zealand this totally different attitude to, to wildlife because they almost lost everything. And so now what's happening in places around Auckland where I was going is they're not just putting birds onto islands where there's predator, predators. They, they sort of had places like the equivalent of the Mornington Peninsula and they take if you imagine like sort of at Portsea they they put a fence where Portsea would be mm-hmm, and yeah. then and then get rid of all the rats and things on the other side all the way to Point Nepean and then they're putting birds back in and this is happening in sort of suburban Wellington and on the outskirts of Auckland and so people have got this real pride and and uh sort of care for their wildlife and something that I think we we don't really have in Australia because we've still see lots of wildlife and kind of take it for granted so so it was great start to the year for me and sort of realizing that you know and it's a great demonstration that when communities get together we can actually have major impacts that that help save our birds so very positive paradise thanks John we'll talk to you again soon you're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.